0: Chevy Equinox with forward collision alert, automatic emergency braking, and available all wheel drive. It's my ultimate mobile device. Go to ChevyDriveChicago.com
1: to schedule a test drive. Chevy Equinox. It's your choice. Own it.
0: is strange. As 1956 was coming to a close, that hit the charts. It was on Groove, an RCA subsidiary by early 57. It got to number one on the R&B charts and number 11 on the pop charts. And Mickey Baker was a music instructor and Sylvia Vanderpool was a student. And of course she was later Sylvia Robinson. And I don't have to outline her contributions to R&B. But they were in the studio 60 years ago today. Two years after that was a huge hit. And uh, they never did duplicate it, but they both went on to very interesting lives. All right, speaking of interesting lives, oh man, yeah, all the way around, including, including, and you need to you need to actually go there, and that is IvorDavisBooks.com, including Ivor Davis, who joins us. Manson Exposed is the latest book, and what an appropriate time for release. Gee, I'm sure that was planned, but even so. Ivor, thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, good evening. Good evening, Rolly. And I must say, if I may just add this, a moment ago, you said there was a lunar landing uh, uh, to coincide with that other occasion. And I suddenly thought, and this isn't too funny, I know, but but the Manson gang were a loony landing. Oh, yeah.
0: So, sorry that's, about that. That's I, perfect.
1: I, I'm, I'm trying to be funny, but I just... It, this is not really a funny subject, is
0: it? Well, it's not funny, but it is loony. That that's for sure. And coming from a writer, that's uh, that's a great turn of a phrase. And don't think I won't steal it. So, with Thank uh, you. <laughs> yeah, right. with, uh, with that in mind, oh, oh it, it's loony. Uh, but uh, b- before we even get to that, you uh, were not only involved heavily in that, but before that, you were heavily involved with the Beatles uh, in terms of uh, chronicling and uh, and writing. And how did that come about?
1: Out. Well it, it's it's uh, one of those perchance things I was a foreign correspondent for the London Daily Express which was a huge newspaper with 4 million plus readers a day and those those were the days that, that some of your listeners may remember when people actually read newspapers yeah. but anyway I was their correspondent my editor in London said get on the plane I was in LA the West Coast bureau chief Get, it, get on the plane and join the boys in San Francisco, and you're on for the whole journey, and you're also going to have to write George Harrison's column for him. So that was it. I was on my way. And I must say, that was also when I got my uh, uh, another dose of, of your hometown, Chicago, and that was quite an amazing, wonderful trip as well. But But anyway, I don't want to go off the road. Uh, that you want to take me on. Go ahead. Sorry.
0: Well, was that the the first tour, the 64 tour, or was that the following year?
1: No, that was the 1964 tour. Okay. Um, And the thing thing that had happened that made the the Beatles so red-hot was that in February 1964, they appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show, and they were a smash hit. And they were such a smash hit, there were, I think, 74 million people tuned into that Ed Sullivan Show on the Sunday night, As soon as Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, heard and saw what the reception was, he said, boys, we're going to America. And then in August of 1964, off we went to cover America about 35 days, about 30 cities, including, of course, uh, the Windy City, your city.
0: It was, a, it was a fascinating tour, and, and Brian Epstein was nothing short of brilliant in that, at the time, the Beatles were first hitting big, so they weren't capitalized in any way. And so, I'm sure you're aware, the deal was that they made deals with radio stations in all these cities to co-sponsor the tour. And that, that, that's yeah. where it became hilarious. Now, there, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence about how the Beatles lost money playing New Orleans, but everybody forgets, yeah, the first radio station bounced the check. And it wound up later at, uh, at WNOE. But I'm sure that there were tons of stories coming out of that. So tell me one that you remember.
1: Well, one of the things that you said was, you're absolutely right. I mean, Chicago, uh, I mean, Chicago, Los Angeles, the radio stations, and you're, a, you're a I won't say a veteran, you're experienced about radio in L.A., I know, and all over the country. And, you know, the rivalry that was so intense or must have been so intense and it was so intense between stations trying to get sponsorship of the Beatles contest. And one of the the crazy things I remember was in Cleveland, Ohio, um, I was on the tour with a guy called Art Schreiber, who's a a brilliant uh, Westinghouse political reporter who suddenly found himself covering the Beatles. And he thought, what the heck do I know about the Beatles? anyway on the tour he as a radio guy got so pally with the beatles that when they got to cleveland um the beatles ignored the 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 sponsorship of the opposition radio station and art schreiber got the best interviews ever (laughs) so there was that kind of competition in every city in la in chicago just uh, i mean it was kind of kind of crazy and the beatles knew that they had to go with a sponsoring radio station, but they loved to turn the apple cart upside down, and they did it many times.
0: Well, you mentioned Los Angeles, and of course, at the time, the two top 40 stations were KFWB and KRLA, and KFWB was a reigning station, but... They really made a horrible misstep because they made fun of the Beatles and KRLA, which at that time didn't even have a license, managed to pick up that tour and literally build their entire success until KHJ dethroned them on KFWB's misstep. I remember these guys like it was yesterday. They were making fun of the Beatles. and I thought, oh, this is going to be death.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, don't think, I think you're too young to be on KMPC at the time. That was a big station. But they weren't yeah. the rock and roll station, were they? Oh, KRLA no. was a kind of Mickey Mouse station in Pasadena, of all places. And so they did. They, they turned one up and they, and they, you know, a, a non-entity station like KRLA took over and became kings of the hill
0: when it came to the Beatles absolutely I think KMPC was somewhat agnostic because you're right they were the big MOR station that was the place to be in fact I thought I really had it made when I got to KMPC but uh, KFWB had been so strong until then the Kroll Collier station and they just blew it almost overnight due to the Beatles and then of course you have things like uh, WFUN they also ran in Miami they put uh, Larry Kane on that tour and uh, it not only put them on the map but it really made larry kane's career
1: it did make larry kane's career and larry who's a, a great guy and tells wonderful stories and of course was on the trip with me in 64 i mean he tells the story about being a kind of a, a almost a junior uh, a junior at the, at the station in miami and yeah. when he spoke to uh, brian epstein brian epstein thought he was a general manager oh. don't ask me why <laughs> because he was a kind of callow uh, uh, around the edges But, but, but of course Larry uh, capitalized on that brilliantly and as a result he got some fantastic, fantastic interviews with the Beatles and was, and as you said, it made his career. And he wrote a book about it, and he's still talking about it. So Larry did nicely. Thank you.
0: Yes, yes, he did. And that was interesting, too, because the Beatles, of course, had uh, played Miami Beach on that Ed Sullivan show. So when they planned the tour, they picked Jacksonville, which was somewhat of an odd choice, unless you knew about WAPE and the strength of that radio station.
1: Yeah, they did. And of course, um, when they did the Ed Sullivan show, They also went down to do another, a a second recording of the Ed Sullivan Show in Miami, and they enjoyed it. And as you pointed out, I mean, uh, I don't know the geographical populations, but you would have thought that on 64 in the tour, they would have gone to Miami. But Jacksonville, well, not quite. (laughs) <laughs> uh, not, not quite Major League,
0: was it? Oh, God, no. But like I say, WAPE had an incredible daytime signal, and the Big Ape was a big station. So uh, they, did, they did right by them. Uh, that was co-owned with a station in Alabama, which actually, uh, I know the Beatles were thinking about playing, but they rejected it because it was a situation of uh, uh, not allowing mixed-race audiences. And I, I thought that was a great decision.
1: Yeah, they did, and also they did on that particular tour. Uh, John, particularly John, who was the kind of the political mind, said we are not going to play in cities where they even suggest segregating audiences. So back then, John, who uh, as it, as you all know, became very political in his attitude. He, um, he was the one that said, and the rest of the boys said, no, we're going to play to mixed audiences. But anyway, that's, a, that's another Beatles story.
0: Well, right. And uh, they, they, of course, played New Orleans. One of my favorite stories, and maybe you were there for that, is they absolutely wanted to meet Fats Domino, and he absolutely didn't know who they were.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, we all went along to see Fats Domino, and there's a wonderful picture uh, of them, of Fats, just hanging out together. But the thing I remember about New Orleans, and it was a few years ago, but I do remember it, is that, again, the girls started invading the stage. And usually, uh, cops on or security guys on foot would would sort of hold the girls back. I remember it was like there was police on horseback galloping onto the ground and stopping the girls from hitting the stage. I mean, that was a rather unique and strange serial scene, the, the sort of the galloping horsemen.
0: It, it is. And, you know, it's when we juxtapose that to Manson, in some ways, that was still such an innocent time. And then within five years, well, that's where we're going to pick it up. IverDavisBooks.com is the website. Manson Exposed is the latest book. Iver Davis is my guest. You're welcome to join us. 888-876-5593-8888. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. favorite Four Tops record. Ask the Lonely, 1965 Motown. Got to number nine on the R&B charts, 24 on the pop charts. It was their second top ten on the R&B charts, but right after that the next record they put out, Baby, I Need Your Lovin', was... Uh, just, uh, just well, that was the first one, actually, but uh, is uh, Can't Help Myself, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch, that's what broke it open for them, big time. But 51 years ago, right now, they were playing the Bronx at Gaelic Park. It was a triple bill with David Ruffin and the Chiffons. On the same day Richard, uh, little Richard, was over in Central Park, sharing a bill with, I think, Checkmates Limited, Sonny Charles's group. Yes, indeed. So, all right, but we're, uh, we're reminiscing about a different subject entirely right now, but I, I tell you, as macabre as it is, and as As awful as the details may be, it still is, maybe because it is so stunning, maybe for other reasons in the human psyche, but it is just fascinating to most of us. Manson Exposed is the book, IverDavisBooks.com. The author, of course, is Iver Davis, who is considered to be a Manson expert. And I got to ask you, Iver, I bet you never thought you'd live to be a Manson expert. How did that come about?
1: Well, you know, it's weird when I hear you say that because um, the problem is I know so much about the case because from day one, day one, which was August the 9th, 1969, uh, when I went along to a house that I realized very quickly was uh, was rented by Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski, and then all the gruesome details of the murders uh, leaked out or came out slowly as we stood outside the gates of this house from the very first. And then of course, being fascinated by this awful, awful crime. I ended up uh, uh, visiting the spa movie ranch where Charles Manson and his and his crazy cohorts lived. And then I went to the trial, covered the trial. And over the years, um, this, this, ca- this case fascinated me and I think it fascinated the world. And I ended up uh, talking to so many people and ended up uh, penning this this new book, Manson Exposed, which is a fifty year journey into, I say, mad madness and murder, and um, and it's it's in a, it's here, and I'm I'm, I'm stuck with it.
0: You know, it's interesting because as you look at Charles Manson's history, when you look at the rap sheet and all that, and, you know, starting from his birth to an uh, illegitimate birth to a teenager and then uh, who wound wound up drinking and he's in reform school and he's burglarizing when he's a young teen and all this, you you read all that and then you get to the part of his band of followers. What I want to know, and maybe, maybe you still don't know because I've never figured this out, Exactly what was it about him, and it's more than charisma, that enticed people to not, not only follow him, but to commit some of the most heinous murders? How did he pull that off?
1: Well, first of all, you've got to realize he was a, as you pointed out, a product of a of a, of a, a warped childhood. His mother went to jail. He never knew his father. And, um, there's a terrific series on uh, on, um, Epic's channel uh, that I watched last night, and I'm actually in it, so there's, there's a little bit of, uh, uh. Of, of, of additional stuff. But but it tells you the way that Manson grew up. And when I watched it last night, he could have gone the other way, but he didn't. And then when he went, as you said, into reform schools and he was badly treated there, he discovered the only way to survive in reform schools, in juvenile hall and then in prisons was to con his way. He was a terrific con man, and uh, he learned it. He learned that that was the only method to survive getting beaten the hell out of him by bigger prisoners because Manson was a, a small, wimpy guy of about five three, five four, and he uh, knew that the only way to survive was to be uh, a, a, not a loudmouth, but a guy that could could turn... Things on their side, and and persuade people not to beat the the hell out of him. And he then he then he went to prison and learned, uh, uh, read some self help books, and used that to upon uh, the girls. And don't forget, back in the sixties, there were drugs, there was LSD, there was discontent. Many young women were unhappy at home, and somehow. Somehow they found Charles Manson and decided that he was their guru. And he very cleverly could meet a girl and within 30 minutes tell her what was wrong with her, what was right with her, what she needed to do. And she was was smitten. And that's what happened to many of these young women. Charlie just collected them like other people collect stamps.
0: Yeah, it, it's just so hard for me to grok this, that here's this guy, is an 18-year-old, he's uh, raping, sodomizing, boys in prison holding razors to their throats, and then when he finally gets released in 67, he doesn't want to get released, he wants to stay in there, and like, like you say, he's uh, certainly not an imposing figure physically, and so then I ha- I have to go with... There had to be something dramatically wrong with his followers, and I guess abusers know how to pick them. But uh, as you look at his followers, uh, was there anybody in that crop who, after looking at all of this... Surprise the heck out of you? I'm going to pick it up right there, give you a moment to think out of that. Uh, and some of them were absolutely, well, insanity's probably just too mild a word. But anybody who you would have never expected that this one would have fallen? If you've got any questions, we'd love to have you join us. 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. Every little kiss, there's a little teardrop
1: For every single thrill, there's another heartache The
0: road is rough, the going gets tough Yes, love is a hurting thing
1: Oh, love is a hurting thing When you're in my arms the throne. But when we're apart, I walk the streets
0: alone. Well, I doesn't get more Chicago oh, than Lou Rawls, finish, that's for sure. Grew up in the Ida B. Wells finish. project. Began singing in Greater Mount Ala Baptist Church, when He was seven years old, and you know the rest of that story. Love is a hurtin' thing, nineteen sixty six on Capitol, number one on the R and B charts, thirteen on the pop charts, but What made me think about it is Tiger Beat, which was a teen magazine, was on the newsstand 53 years ago today. It came out, and one of the things they were discussing was the Monterey Pop Festival, and they're talking about Big Brother and the Holding Company and Jimi Hendrix, and then they're saying, and Peter Tork of the Monkees introduced Lou Rawls, and I thought, man, that's one I wish they had on film. Maybe they do. I don't know. We're uh, we're talking about another event, which while certainly the murders are not on film, the trial was for month after month after month, the Charles Manson trial, or certainly his followers' trial. IverDavisBooks.com, Manson Exposed is the latest. You'll see things and read things that you've never seen anywhere else. And I was asking Iver, when you profiled the personalities of all his various followers, was there anybody who stood out where you thought, man, I didn't think they'd fall for it?
1: Well, I think Leslie Van Houten was a pretty homecoming Princess from uh, Monrovia, California, and uh, and you would have thought that uh, with her upbringing she wouldn't have succumbed, but she did, and she uh, had problems. Uh, she was pregnant, and then she had a terrible abortion, and she uh, had battles with her family. But uh, one of the one of the women who did uh, get involved with Manson, but fortunately didn't get involved in any of the any of the murders, was Diane Lake. And she was just 14 when her parents, who were kind of hippies, just turned her over to Manson. <sighs> Fortunately, Diane turned out pretty good. Uh, she's married. She has family. She's a grandmother. And But she tells horrible stories of, of the way Manson just enticed all the girls. And the girls did exactly what they said. They, they, whatever Manson said, they did it. And Manson helped. Uh, helped it along by handing out LSD-like uh, like cookies and like, like uh, candies. So, um, I don't know. Susan Atkins was another one. That, that she, she murdered, stabbed the pregnant Sharon Tate. Um, she came from a well-to-do San Diego family, uh, stockbroker father, but she was very unhappy with her mother, with her father. She ran away. And Manson had this, I don't know whether it's magic or what, he said, for example, to Leslie Krenwinkel, who is now still in jail uh, for the murders, that she, Leslie was not a very attractive young woman, but Charlie said, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever met, and uh, she was a goner. That was her. And so they it, they wanted to hear that. They were troubled in many ways. Uh, it doesn't quite answer the question you want, but I think Leslie Van Houten is the only one that I thought that, that if she had, avoided it, she wouldn't be in jail as she is today and trying every four years to get out on parole, getting parole, but then the governor of California says, no way, Leslie. So that was a a, a melange of the ladies who who crossed the path of Charlie and unfortunately uh, were were, were devastated by that uh, uh, get-together, that relationship.
0: Yeah, that, that's the part that is, to me, the hardest to comprehend, that uh, it's one thing to follow a guy, it's another thing to start taking lives, and, uh, and then, of course, uh, bragging about it in prison, which is how this whole thing unwound, isn't it? Yes.
1: I mean, you've got to realize that Susan Atkins was the one that blew the whistle on Charlie. Um, she then relented and, 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 and denied everything she said, but what had happened was, Susan was a lost soul. Susan was arrested for the murder of a, of a musician called Gary Hinman. And when she was in jail, she wanted to be a big shot. So she started talking to two of her cellmates who didn't believe her, first of all. And in this conversation late at night in their jail cells, in their dormitory, I should say, in downtown Los Angeles, Sybil Brand Institute, Susan Atkins told them how she had killed Sharon Pate. And at first, the inmates thought she was just a braggart who had read stuff in the paper. But then finally, uh, they realized that she was the real thing. They told the cops. They told the prison guards. The guards then told police. Police came to see Susan Atkins, and Susan spilled her guts. Again, as I said a moment ago, Rolly, she then denied it all, and she be, ended up, instead of becoming a witness for the prosecution, she was uh, a, a convicted with the rest of them and sent to, to, the, to the death chamber. And then, of course, in, in uh, uh, two years after the, uh, the trial in seventy two, California abolished the death penalty. And to this very day, I mean, Susan Atkins is dead, right. Charles Manson is dead, but to this very day, uh, Leslie Van Houten, Patricia Krenwinkle, Charles Tex Watson are all sitting in jail, hoping that somebody will set them free um, uh, and they can start a new life at their their, um, advanced age.
0: I can't imagine how they would think that, but uh, I guess stranger things have happened, but I'm not 100% certain, certain how. Now, one of the rumors around L.A. at the time was that they, they weren't after Tate, they were after Terry Melcher, who used to live in the house. Was that true? Uh,
1: no, I think it was not true, because Manson knew, uh, of course, as you pointed out, Terry Melcher lived at the murder house with his then-girlfriend, the beautiful model actress, Candace Bergen. But they had moved out. And what actually happened was that Charlie decided to send them out to 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 carry out the carnage that they did, because he wanted to send a message. He wanted to start a race riot. He wanted them to leave uh, signs in blood, in the victim's blood, at the house, which he, in his kind of crazed mind, uh, imagined, that the blame for the murders would be placed on black militant panther. And, and and that would somehow, I mean, you've got to, I mean, talking about it right now, to be honest with you, Rolly, it sounds incredulous. Who's going to believe that rubbish? But this is the way Manson thought, set the murders off, not to, not to get revenge against Terry Melcher, although he was angry at Terry Melcher for not giving him a recording contract. But he wanted to start a race riot and somehow... He thought that if if they left messages at the murder scenes, somehow the cops would think that it was it was blacks, uh, black uh, panthers that were responsible for these killings. It's a convoluted, mind thinking, scrambled brains idea, but um, but that was the way Manson thought. And of course, it it, uh, it, it believe it or not, during the trial which I covered, the district attorney came up with this. Manson wanted to start a revolution. And the girls, even today, even Diane Lake, who who I spoke to a a few weeks ago, said we believed there was going to be race riots and we believed Charlie was our salvation and we believed we would escape to an underground city in the desert of California and we would survive. So um, what with drugs and LSD and all sorts of other uh, stimulants, chemical stimulants, they would have believed anything. It's a sort of a long-winded answer to your question, but I think Charlie knew, getting back to your original question, Charlie knew that Terry Melcher didn't live at the house, but he didn't care.
0: So, I mean, I know where it is, obviously. It's off of Benedict Canyon. It's between the Homeby Hills basic area. But why that house?
1: Well, Charlie had been at the house, and so had his chief lieutenant or lieutenant, Charles Tex Watson Charles Tex Watson had actually stayed at the Terry Melcher Cielo Drive house because he knew Terry Melcher he knew uh, and 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 he went there and they knew the locale and, and and also Charlie knew the locale he'd never been into the house he'd actually been in the car with Dennis Wilson the drummer of the Beach Boys who dropped Terry Melcher off with Charlie in the back seat so he knew where the where the place was, and so did Charles Tex Watson, who, as I mentioned a moment ago, had stayed there and been to dinner parties there, but not with not with Terry Melcher, with the guy that was uh, was looking after the house when Terry Melcher was out of the country. So, so the point was that Tex Watson knew the Cielo Drive house, and 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 Manson knew what it was, and he was he thought it was a symbolic thing to send them out to this famous famous residence and create the, the carnage and the havoc that was created.
0: It's fascinating. The rumor that we had heard, in addition to the Terry Melcher story, was that uh, that Manson had gone to the house after Terry left, and uh, uh, someone related to Tate, maybe a photographer or something, told him, you got to leave by the back alley. And that gave him a motive saying, you know, we'll, we'll get you. Was there anything based on that? Well,
1: well, there is a certain truth to that. What actually happened was, that when Terry Melcher didn't come across for, for Charlie Manson to get a contract, uh, recording contract, which he uh, Manson in his mind imagined that had happened, he wanted to get a hold of Melcher and say, "Hey, you know, I want to, I want to uh, find out what's going on with this deal that you promised me." So he actually went to the house to confront Melcher. When he got to the house, um, Sharon Tate was at the house, and so was Sharon Tate's photographer friend. Um, I forget the guy's name, but he was there as well. And Manson came to the house and asked the photographer, that he, where where's Terry Melcher? And the photographer said, I don't know. Why don't you go and talk to Rudy Altabelli? Now, Rudy Altabelli was a, a minor league figure in this, but he owned the house and he lived in the guest house. And Charlie knew uh, who Altabelli was, who was a hot Hollywood agent. So as Charlie was leaving the house, uh, the photographer said, "Don't come into the main house. Go to the guest house." And kind of, kind of shunted him aside rather disrespectfully, according to Manson. And that was the only time that supposedly that Charlie got a glimpse of Sharon Tate, who happened to come outside and say to her photographer friend, "Who's that guy?" He said, "I don't know, but I send him. I sent him to the guest house to talk to Rudy." That was the brief encounter, if you want to call it that, that Manson had with Sharon Tate. That's The only one I can, I can think of, and the only one I believe that actually happened.
0: Now, just before those murders, which were certainly on every newscast in every city, probably worldwide, but was the lesser-known Gary Hinman murder in Topanga Canyon. And what was the connection?
1: It was the connection, and I believe... Uh, the reason that Manson actually sent them out was not to start a race war, but, but about a week before, uh, 10 days before the murder of Sharon Tate and her friends and J.C. Brink and all the people that were living at the house with Sharon, 10 days before, Charlie Manson sent sent Robert Bosley, and Bosley was a musician, another member of his clan, if you like, to go and get some money from Gary Hinman at his Topanga Canyon house. And Beausoleil showed up. Uh, Hinman said he didn't have any money. Uh, Beausoleil ended up beating him up and and and, and killing him. Um, and and calling Manson before he killed him. And Manson came over, uh, interrogated Hinman, and cut Hinman's ear off. Would you believe? And I mean, this is horrible. But but after he cut the ear off, he he gave the ear to Susan Atkins. <laughs> Manson left. And Susan Atkins sewed the ear back on this unfortunate musician and Manson left and told uh, Beausoleil, you know what to do. Beausoleil, in in all his stupidity, got the murdered man's car, uh, drove uh, to San Luis Obispo, about 150 miles away, was arrested in the murder victim's car, and to this very day is in jail, serving life, um, and and also has been trying to get out on, on bail. Now... The bottom, the, 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 the juxtaposition of this story was, I believe, and many uh, of the prosecution people at the time believed that Charlie Manson sent his people to kill. The reason was he wanted to to, to, to show the cops that he had got the wrong man, that Beau was not responsible for the murder of Gary Hinman. And if he did copycat murders at Sharon Tate's house, and that Lino and Rosemary LaBianca's house a day after the Sharon Tate murders, the cops would say, "Hey, there's a gang out there killing people. Bosley is in prison. He must be innocent, and and so we've got to let Bobby Bosley out, mm. release him from jail." It's again convoluted, bizarre mm. thinking, but that was Charles Manson's brain, and that's I really believe why Manson, Manson's is his gang out to do the killings.
0: It's just, you know, it's mind-numbing, but as you say, between his brain and, and the chemicals involved with all these people, things are somehow in place. Uh, of course, probably even more so than the, the Tate murder was the next night, and that's where we'll pick it up. And I, I say that because the the LaBiancas, they, they aren't stars. They are neighbors to the stars. They're living in Los Feliz. I mean, it's a nice area, but so we'll find out about that. You need to find out about the whole story, and you can do that if you read Manson Exposed. Ivor Davis has written it, and he would be one to know. And if you go to IvorDavisBooks.com, you can pick yourself up a copy. But if you got any questions, this is a place to be. 888-876-5593. It's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. It's WGN Radio. And I'm Raleigh James on WGN Radio. We're going to forego a bumper because I only have three minutes left with Ibert Davis and IverDavisBooks.com for Manson Exposed, by the way. And I want to spend them spend them wisely because I, I guess the thing to many of us that was such a shock at the time and to this day is the LaBianca murders. We're, we're talking about, you know, a couple, he had a chain of grocery stores, I think it was Gateway Ranch, and uh, she was in business. But there, there was nothing about them, and there was nothing particularly about La Los Feliz at that point in time. Why?
1: Why? Yes, good question. Um, you're absolutely right. It wasn't a high-rent district. It was a lovely home, as you as you remember, the, the Los Feliz area. Yeah. What happened was the second night, Rolly, was that Manson thought they made a mess the first night. I'm going to show them how to do it. So he went out in the car with them, uh, with, the, with, with with them and, and he drove around randomly for about 30 to 40 minutes uh, looked in a couple of windows decided there was a kid in one window so they wouldn't send him in and then he went to the Los Feliz area which he knew because two doors away was a, a friend of his called Harold True who lived there in that area and Harold True used to, used to have parties where Manson and the girls came along so he decided to go into the La Bianca House, the La Bianca House, as you rightly pointed out a moment ago, were not famous, uh, were not, well, they were well-to-do because they had that grocery chain. But Charlie went into the house and he said, like a burglar, he, he, uh, the, the La Biancas allowed themselves to be tied up. Charlie tied them up. He went out of the house. He went back to the car and he said to Tex Watson and Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Kremwinkle, Go back in there. You know what to do. And Charlie, would you believe, got back in the car and drove off with Linda Kasabian, who was a, one of the other Manson girls. And and he said to the killers, when you've done, you've done what you need, you know you need to do, hitchhike back to the ranch. And they did. They did. They did the killings and they hitchhiked back to the ranch. And that was Manson showing them in his mind. That, that, that this is the way to carry out a clean, awful murder. So that was the reason they chose Los Feliz. He knew the area a bit, and unfortunately, the, the La Biancas were in the the, the the wrong house at the wrong time. Otherwise, uh, uh, they were uh, they were also innocent victims.
0: I guess in the final analysis, it's the old, it's not possible to analyze crazy. And that's, that's really what we're talking about here. This is off-the-scales insanity, and maybe that's what makes it a fascinating read. Maybe because you're such a great writer, I enjoyed reading it. Manson Exposed is the book, com. Thanks for spending an hour with me, Iver.
1: Thank you for having me, and we've got a lot to talk about through Chicago and other things another time, I hope.
0: Me too, thanks. All right, so that'll that'll be fun. Just uh it is a great read and and you should.